0: Let's go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. John 7, 1 through 24, that's on page 892 of the Pew Bibles. And this is part of the ongoing series through the book, verse by verse. It's called Just That Simple because God has made his message of salvation simple enough for all of us to hear and understand. So before we go to God's word, let's approach him with prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we come before you as your church this morning to hear your word read and proclaimed. We ask that you would give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We want to see not only the meaning, the original meaning of this passage, what it meant in its original context to the first hearers and first readers, but Father, we also want to see how this best applies to our life and how we can walk before you more faithfully as a result of learning from your word. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Jonathan was four and a half, and the only thing he ate for lunch or dinner was chicken nuggets. He had cereal for breakfast, but other than that, the only thing that he would eat were chicken nuggets. And his parents were wondering what to do about this. They they realized this was an issue. They they were wondering how they possibly got here. They were beating themselves up as bad parents. They went through all those emotions, but they finally resolved, we need to do something about this. And so the next day at lunch, Jonathan's mother said, Jonathan, you can have... uh, whatever you want for lunch, but I'm going to make you something that I liked when I was a kid. Jonathan said, I just want chicken nuggets. And she said, you can have those, but first you have to eat something that I had when I was a kid. I think you're going to like it. And he said, what is it? She said, it's called ants on a log. It's a celery stick filled with peanut butter with raisins on top. He said, no, I don't want that. I just want chicken nuggets. She said, you need to eat this first. And if you eat all of this, then you can also have chicken nuggets. So she made him the ants on the log. She put it on the plate. Jonathan kind of poked at it and then waited for mom to go out of visual sight. And then he kind of picked it up and smelled it. And then he licked the peanut butter and that tasted okay. And so he took a bite. And then he put it down. He said, I'm all done. She said, no, you need to eat the whole thing, Jonathan. It's important that you try something new. And so he ate the whole thing, and then he had his chicken nuggets. The next day, at lunchtime, she said, Jonathan, what do you want for lunch? He said, chicken nuggets. But can you also make me an ants on the log? She said, yes, I can. And I think there's some more foods that I liked when I was a kid, and I'll show you some of those so you can try those. It can be refreshing when we try something new. It kind of kicks us out of our comfort zone, out of our routine. Sometimes we're pleasantly surprised. It can be food. It doesn't have to be, but it could, could be food. I think there's still some things that we haven't tried yet, or maybe some things that are prepared in a different way that we haven't tried that can be a pleasant experience. Maybe it's going somewhere new. Maybe it's meeting new people. Maybe it's listening to a type of music that you've never heard before, or or even simply going for a walk where in a place where you've never taken a walk before. It's just something new. It can be a really good, refreshing experience. Other times, trying something new is not a good idea. If there's something, or if somebody wants us to try something new that takes us away from God and away from obeying God's word, then that's not a good experience, and we don't need to try that. In John chapter 7, we see both kinds of examples. First, we see Jesus' brothers, and they want him to try something new in terms of how he's doing his ministry. And then later in chapter 7, we see Jesus encouraging people in a crowd to try something new. And he asks them to try two things. Following the light so that they can receive more light. And then also judging with something he calls right judgment. Now we're going to explore what those two things mean and see why they're still vitally important for us today as we live out our Christian life. So let's look at the passage. This is John 7, 1 through 24. And it begins uh, at verse 1 of chapter 7 through, through the 24th verse. Here it is. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, But it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, if on that if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I make or excuse me, I made a whole a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. So there is a lot packed into these 24 verses. Here's kind of a road map so you know where we're going. Verses 1 through 9, we're going to go through. There will be one application point on that at the end. Then verses 10 through 13 are kind of a, a bridge passage that talks about the crowds and their reaction. And then 14 through 24, we're going to have two application points following the light to get more light. And right judgment. And then that one is going to be split off into two more subpoints. So there's kind of a cascading waterfall outline type to this passage, but I think we can get through it and, and get through it well. So let's start with verse one. It says, "After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and that small content summarizes about six months of Jesus' ministry. He went about, meaning he lived, and he he performed signs, and he healed, and he taught. And this comment connects what's happening from John 6, which you remember happened around Passover, and then what the content in chapter 7, which is happening around a different festival called the Feast of Booths. And in between there is about six months' time. Now, Jesus only had a three-year ministry. So John has selected to omit six months of a three-year ministry. That's a decent percentage of his total time. And once again, we're reminded he is selective. There is a lot of ministry that we're not seeing. These things are selected so that people may believe in Jesus. It says he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Uh, Jesus was aware that the Jews were trying to kill him back in John 5:18 it says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him so they've been plotting to kill him for a while now he's aware of that and he wants to avoid that confrontation he wants to avoid a, a kind of direct head-to-head confrontation with these Jewish leaders because it's not yet time he's not yet ready to go to the cross and then in verse 2, it says the, the Jewish Feast of Booths was at hand. This is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, if you've heard it said that way, or the Feast of Ingathering. Sometimes it's referred to as that. This was a seven-day feast. It was in the, the same month, the, the seventh month. Um, this, it's equivalent to our October. And it was in the same month as the, the Day of Atonement. And it was a seven-day feast. And what they were doing during this feast is they were commanded to make makeshift booths and and dwelling places out of sticks and branches and palm trees and anything they could find. And they were to live in these booths for seven days. That's why it was called the Feast of Booths. And it was to remind them of God's provision for his people after the Egyptian exodus when they were wandering about in the wilderness as a nomadic people. But it was also a provision or a celebration of God's provision for them. This was a time—you think of October, and we think of harvesting in the fields. It was a time when they harvested too. They brought in some some crops, and so it was a time to celebrate God's provision for them as they brought in the harvest. So it was a twofold celebration. It celebrated God's protection and provision for them. In verses 3 through 5, Jesus' brothers attempt to influence him with their words. Now, some think that this reference to brothers just means uh, like uh, fellow believers slash disciples, kind of like we use Christian brothers and sisters today. Uh, I don't think that's it. Um, I don't think it's just loyal followers. Um, These brothers are presented to us as unbelievers. In verse 5, John states that not even... His brothers believed in him. And that really doesn't make any sense unless they're talking about his actual brothers. Not even his brothers believed in him, meaning his actual half-brothers who were born to Mary after Jesus was born. And they've been mentioned before. Uh, John 2.12 says, after this, he went down, down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, So John differentiates between the disciples and his brothers and mentions them along with his mother. So there is half-brothers, and they do not believe in him. And these unbelieving half-brothers of Jesus decide to give him some advice. They want him to try something new. Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, Jesus has been ministering and teaching and healing and performing signs all over Galilee, and that's the problem in in their mind. He's been doing this in Galilee instead of Jerusalem. Galilee was nowheresville compared to Jerusalem. This is like uh, Times Square in New York City on on New Year's Eve versus a soybean field in South Dakota. You need to go where the action is, Jesus. Stay out of the field. Stay out of this this rural area. In fact, it's such a contrast that his disciples tell him that his Galilean ministry is like ministering in secret. they're, They're asking him, are you trying to cover up everything? are you trying to hide yourself from everyone? so they give them this advice, you need to market yourself you need to promote yourself you need to have a a social media presence and a YouTube channel you need to have a logo and a website, you need to brand yourself at the very least get some corporate sponsors and and some partners here or a promoter or an agent, you need some representation Get down there. I've, I've seen your product, Jesus. You do some great healings, but you've got to go where the people are. Try something new. Go down to Judea. Start impressing people with your skills. And Jesus responds by saying, no, I'm not going to go down to Judea and try something new with my ministry. I'm not going down in the way you want me to I'm not going in, down when you want me to. The answer is no. Verse 6, he says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. He's saying, I'm not going now in the way you want me to, and the time you want me to. I, I'm gonna, he's going to go in his own way, but not like that. I'm, I'm not going to try something new. Jesus' entire life was lived in obedience to the Father and he's not about to start listening to some bad advice from some unbelievers. He will go up privately, not publicly. He will go up later, not now. He will go in the way that the Father wants him to go. But he says their time, on the other hand, is, is all the time. You, you can go whenever you want. You, you can go now, you can go later, it doesn't matter to you, because he understands that, that unbelievers uh, don't live their life Centered around the Word of God, you can go and do whatever you want, whenever you want. You're not concerned with what God wants you to do. Verse seven, a the beginning part it says, "The world cannot hate you," and this confirms that Jesus's brothers were unbelievers, because later in John fifteen nineteen he says, "If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world." Therefore, the world hates you. He's talking about his true disciples. So true disciples are hated by the world. These brothers, he says, the world cannot hate you. So that confirms they're unbelievers. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So the world hates Jesus. The world hates Jesus' followers. Why? Because he testifies that their works are are evil. Jesus gives witness to or calls out sin. He confronts the world and says, Those works you're doing, those are evil, those are wicked, those are sinful, those are not in accordance with, with God's will. He exposes hearts, He reveals sinful, rebellious natures, and the unbeliever does not want to be told that they are wrong or evil or wicked, it wants to be told that however they're living is right. They want to be accepted. The world even takes pride in sin and wants everyone to affirm it and and congratulate them and celebrate it. In fact, if you confront the unbelieving world with Scripture, it will not only hate you, but it will turn around and call you hateful. And I think that's what we see today, even, if we try to confront the world about sin. Sin. That's why the world hates Jesus. And that's why the world hates faithful, biblical believers and churches. Because I testify about it, that its works are evil. And then verses 8 and 9, Jesus concludes his response by telling them, go on without me. And um, he stayed behind in Galilee and it was t- until it was time to go in his own way and his own time. Then we get to verses uh, 10 through 13. Mixed impressions. Jesus did go up to the feast in his own way, in his own time. It says in private, not drawing attention to himself, not entering into a direct head-to-head conflict with the leaders. The leaders who were told that are looking to kill Jesus. So when in verse 11 here where it says they were looking for him, that wasn't a positive thing. It's not like they were saying, oh, where's Jesus? I hope I get a chance to, to see him. No, it was, where is that guy? We want to finish this business And kill him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. Now, the people here in the Gospel of John, and and right here in particular, are contrasted with the Jews. When we read the Jews in the book of John, he's usually referring to the leaders, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, which was that 70 member council that ruled. It was like combining the legislative branch and the judicial branch together under one roof with these leaders and and they just ruled. They were the law for for everyone in Jerusalem. So those were the Jews. These are the people. So this is the common folk. When John tells us that the people were muttering, this this is like uh, him going around with a microphone and a camera crew and asking people as they walk down the street, what do you think of Jesus? This is just the common, everyday person, not, not the leader, leadership. It says there, were much, there was much muttering, and they were talking about Jesus, and surprise, they were divided. Some say, he is a good man. Some say, no, he is leading people astray. So you've got, he's a good guy, he's a bad guy. And what this shows us is that even among unbelievers, uh, they're not called disciples, this is just a crowd. This is just the people. There are varying opinions, and it's possible to have a positive opinion about Jesus, but that's not saving faith. So even though you've got he's a good guy, he's a bad guy, none of them seem to be in any way attaching themselves and following with, with saving faith. And that tells us today the same thing is true. We, we can have people that are just generally um, neutral towards Christ, but that doesn't mean that they're in a relationship with Christ. I remember talking with one person in particular. They said, um, that's good for you. I'm glad that's your thing. I, I, I could see that, and I could see how you get energized. That's cool, but that's, that's not for me. I don't have anything against Jesus. He's just not a big part of my life. He's a good guy, but I'm not following him. Verse 13, it says, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Here's this widespread fear. This shows us the intimidating influence that the Jewish leadership had on the general population in Jerusalem. They were afraid to come out and talk about Jesus. They were afraid to say he's a good guy in public because somebody might overhear them and they get they might get reported to the Jewish leadership. They were in fear of their leaders because their opinion differed from the leadership's opinion. And then verses 14 to the end, Jesus is teaching about the middle of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So this would have been the outer courts of the temple, these kind of colonnaded covered areas. And it was understood that if you wanted to go to the temple and, and hear good teaching that's where you went that's where the established teachers hung out and they taught and the people listened and they were able to answer ask questions and, and interact with with the teachers and in verse 15 Jesus's teaching caused some of the Jews to marvel now in those days and at that time if you wanted to be respected as a teacher, then you went through the right channels. You, you went to Jerusalem. That's where the action was. You, you attached yourself to one of these schools of, of teaching and you sat at the feet of, and that's just a phrase to say, become an apprentice or a student. You sat at the feet of some teacher that was greater than you and that had already a reputation of, of being a great teacher and you learned from them and you patterned after them. You became their disciple. And they became your teacher or rabbi. So Jesus had not been to any of these schools. He had not sat at the feet of anyone. And so here he is, and he's not been raised or taught by any of the credentialed teachers. You see a footnote by learning. It says, or this man knows his letters. That's also translated in the New Testament as writings or scriptures So the the Jews that are in the temple are looking at Jesus and their question is this. How did this guy get this good? Where did he come from? How does he teach this well? How does he know the scriptures this well? Jesus answers them in verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, my words are the words of God. And then he tells them to try something new. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, that, the way that's translated here in the ESV, it's a little bit convoluted. But what he's saying is, if you want to know whether my words are really the words of God, then you need to start acting on the light that you do have. Take the word of God that you do know Take what you you do have and you know for sure is the word of God and act on it. Follow the light and you will receive more light. That's what he's telling them to do. Try something new. Follow the light to get more light. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority speaks his own or seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. He's giving instructions on how to identify a servant of God. Do they glorify God? Do they seek God's glory or do they glorify themselves? Do they seek their own glory? Do they lift up God or do they lift up themselves? Now Jesus came and his mission was to glorify the Father and that is all he did. And the only time he lifted up himself was when he was lifted up on the cross. So he is the true servant of God. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law This seems almost like a strange place to insert Moses and the law. It almost feels like an interruption at first glance. Um, But if we look again, he's just told them that his words are the words of God. And then he told them to try something new. If you want to know for sure if these words that I'm speaking are the actual words of God, then obey God's word. In other words, act on the light that you have and move towards the light, obey it. Well, what is the light? He says, "Follow the light. Act on the light." What is the light? What what's something that they would know is from God? Old Testament scripture. And of all Old Testament scripture, of all the books of Moses, which one do you think stands out the most? Which one do you think you can could probably make the strongest argument that nobody would recognize that that's not from God? Ten Commandments. Pretty strong. What has God revealed to them in the Ten Commandments, in his law, through Moses? Well, the Sixth Commandment is, thou shalt not murder. And what do they want to do with him? Kill him. They want to murder him, an innocent man. So Jesus is telling them this. If you want to know if my words are the words of God, if you want more light and understanding from God to verify what I'm saying, then obey his revealed word. But you're not doing that, because at the very basic, the the foundational level of God's word to you you, as he commands you to relate to one another, is not to kill someone, and you're trying to do that. So you're not going to see if this is really from me. God's not going to give you more light, because you're not acting on the light he has given you. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? The crowd, which is a representation of the world, responds to Jesus with hatred. What did Jesus just say? The world hates me because I exposes its, its works as evil. What did he just do? You're trying to kill me. He exposed their works as, as evil. And what are they doing? Hating him. The second part of the response is a denial. Who's seeking to kill you? I, I'm not seeking to kill you. Instead of telling them, yes, you are. You're the ones trying to kill me. He takes a different approach in verses 21 through 23. He points to the one work that he did in Jerusalem that they were all aware of. This was the healing of the man paralyzed for 38 years. That was the, done, that was the work done just outside the city gate. And that attracted a lot of attention. So he points to that work. And he says, on account of that miracle, the, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Part of the reason they sought to kill him was because he did that on a Sabbath. Here, Jesus reminds them of that miracle and says they all marveled at it, marveled or astonished, not in the sense that they were impressed and they thought, wow, look at the Son of God. But no, they were shocked that someone would do this on the Sabbath. They were were marveling at that. But look what he does. He takes them to, again, Moses and the law, something they could not argue with. He goes back to, to basic building blocks of what they believed. They would have been zoned zoomed, zoomed in, like with laser focus. When he mentions Moses and the law, they would have been all ears because they considered that unrefutable word of God. Yes, we live by the Moses Mosaic law. So he points out that they circumcise male infants on the eighth day, regardless of whether or not it's a Sabbath. And they do that without any thought of breaking the Sabbath. So he's telling them, look, you already acknowledge that some work may be done on the Sabbath, correct? Okay, you're with me so far? He's telling them, you circumcise on the eighth day. You're willing to cut off or remove a part of someone's body on the Sabbath. I restored a man's body on the Sabbath, you do that to make them right and to follow God's word and law and, and to make them presentable to God as He has commanded, I'm presenting Him whole and healed to God. In other words, if you can perform circumcision on the Sabbath and they did, if you can do that and remain guiltless, how is it that you're finding guilt with me? If what you do is permissible on the Sabbath, then what I do or what I did is even more permissible on the Sabbath. They couldn't argue with that. He was arguing from Mosaic law. And then he closes with this, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He's saying, you saw me perform a work on the Sabbath and you immediately rushed to the conclusion that I was a lawbreaker. I'm a sinner because I did something that you didn't think was appropriate on the Sabbath. Instead, you should have asked what kind of work was done. Instead, you should have asked the question, does God allow for this to be done on the Sabbath? Healing people? um, Doing good? uh, Acts of mercy? Yeah, those things are permissible on the Sabbath, and they should have known that. So Jesus is asking them to try something new. He's saying, I want you to judge with right judgment. What is right judgment? Making judgments on the whole counsel of God's word, everything. They took Exodus 20.10, a part of it, which is the fourth commandment. You shall not do any work on that day. And by the time of Jesus in the first century, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the the whole Jewish leadership had accumulated 1,500, that's 1,500 additional laws based on the fourth commandment they had piled on their own teachings to the fourth commandment that were man-made. And what they did was they were overlooking what God had already said. There were other passages of scripture, other verses that informed how that verse should be applied and, and carried out and obeyed. But instead they ignored all that and they piled up their own things on top of it. And they obeyed that. For example, uh, priests were commanded to serve in the temple on the Sabbath day. They were working, therefore works of ministry and service to God are permissible on the Sabbath. Animals were fed on the Sabbath. Animals were lifted up out of a pit on a Sabbath if, if they were injured or needed attention. So if an animal is lifted up out of a pit, if you perform an act of mercy for an animal, then surely an act of mercy towards a person who is made in the image of God is permissible. So yes, you can tend to their wounds. Yes, you can heal them. Yes, you can go and, and draw water out of the well and carry a heavy water jug back if you needed to revive them. or All those things would be permissible. And Jesus is telling them, you should have understood those things from reading the rest of Scripture. Instead, you've taken one command, one verse, which is a good verse, and you've piled your own things on it and have ignored everything else. In other words, God has told you how to interpret that commandment. You've ignored it and you've taken it in your own direction. So that's, why he, that's what he's telling them when he says, do not judge by appearances. He's saying, do not judge by how it appears to you, but instead judge with right judgment the whole of scripture. Now, I want to take us to one more place to confirm this understanding because we're going to build a lot of application on it. So, so hang with me. This is another example of when Jesus' disciples were accused of breaking the Sabbath. So very similar circumstance. This one, he was accused of breaking the Sabbath when he healed the man that was paralyzed. And in this next context, Matthew 12, his disciples were accused of breaking the Sabbath when they ate heads of grain. So in Matthew 12... Uh, This is the context of of Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field. They were hungry. It was the Sabbath. So they plucked some heads of grain off and ate them. And the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders jumped on them and said, hey, your disciples are breaking the law. You're doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Here's Jesus's response. Have you not read? And he takes them to 1 Samuel 21, 3 through 6. Or have you not read in the law? And he takes them to Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. And if you had known what this means, quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's Hosea 6.6. 6, you would have not condemned the guiltless. So what does Jesus do? In response to the charge of Sabbath breaking, he says, you should have known from this place and this place and this place in scripture, you should have looked at all these different areas that inform how to obey and apply the commandment. But instead you didn't. You didn't look to scripture. God has told you how to interpret that verse. You have ignored that. You've piled up your own things. So both cases, Jesus gives the same response. He expects them to know how to properly apply it. And he expects that they should have gone to God's word instead of piling up their own commandments and using their own judgment. There's there's the text. Let's summarize something new. Try something new. Jesus had avoided going to Judea for several months because the Jews wanted to kill him. When the Feast of Booths arrived, Jesus' unbelieving brothers tried to persuade him to go to Jerusalem for the purpose of showing himself to the world and gaining more disciples and popularity. Jesus refused to go at that time, and for that purpose, later he went privately. When Jesus arrived, the people were expressing mixed opinions about him. Halfway through the Feast, he began to teach. He declared that his teaching was from, the only one, uh, was from the one who sent him and those who act on God's word will receive increased spiritual light. The temple crowd accused Jesus of demon possession. Jesus responded with an argument that exposed their inconsistent beliefs and poor judgment that was not based on the word of God. So like I said at the beginning, we want to take three points. First, from one through nine. The world will always hate the faithful church. The world will always hate the faithful church. The faithful church is duty-bound to proclaim the truth of Scripture, to proclaim the gospel, which means, like Jesus, she will have to confront and expose sin. There are times when the church must do some finger-pointing and say, that's evil, that's sinful. Uh, Of course, it starts with ourselves. We look to our own lives. But at some point, the world is going to have to engage the crowd. And part of the gospel proclamation includes uh, conviction of sin. And Before we have the good news, we have to know the bad news. So the church is always going to be at odds with the world. In other words, if the church is loved by the world, something has gone terribly wrong. I just heard of, uh, providentially, just heard of an illustration that I'm going to bring in of a church not around here, very far away from here, so it's no, that's no church that you're aware of, that has decided to retool and revamp their entire church around making themselves loved by the world. Their whole vision, their, their time, their money, their, the lead pastor is driving it, and everyone is, is working up and, and reinventing their, their church's ministry and focus so that they are loved by the world. Now, they don't use the word love. They use the word um, the phrase, we want to make be a church that if we were removed, we are missed by the world, that they miss us, that they long for us to return. No one has stopped to ask the question if that's what God has called them to do. No one has stopped to to look for a biblical command or a mandate or or anything in Scripture that says that we are commanded to be loved by the world or that we are to to fashion our message or our methods and live in such a way that the world loves us. In fact, what we see when we look at Scripture is the exact opposite. This verse right here, uh, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. The faithful followers of Jesus and the faithful church will also walk in the way of Jesus. The mission of the church is to go and make disciples. We get that from Jesus himself. Go therefore and go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and commanding them, uh, teaching them to, to obey everything I've commanded. That's our mission. And part of that mission is confronting sin, but not making ourselves loved by the world. Uh, Luke six twenty six, Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Woe to you. Now, this doesn't mean we have to go out of our way and intentionally try to provoke a negative response from the unbelieving world. I mean, we we are to go to work, we are to pay our taxes, we are to obey the law, and unless the world is commanding us to do something that scripture prohibits or prohibiting us from doing something that scripture commands us, we're to be model citizens. But we're not a church with a mission to make ourselves loved by the world, Jesus teaches there will always be an unavoidable enmity between Christ's faithful church and the world. And here's why we need to recognize that. As the church, we need to be vigilant and be on guard so that if that message ever comes down the, the, the channels of, hey, we need to retool so we're, we're loved by the world, that we say, oh, hold on a second. That's not what we're commanded to do. The world will be transformed as we make disciples but we're not to be loved by the world. Let's put it this way. If NBC News and Oprah and the governor of Illinois think that your church is great, you've you've gone in a very, very wrong direction. You're probably not even a legitimate church anymore. We don't want the world to speak well of us. We want Christ to speak well of us. When we look at the book of Revelation and we see those letters to the churches, who's evaluating the churches? Christ. That's whose evaluation counts. That's who, we want to, that's who we're going to stand before. That's who we want to please. That's who we want to love us. Christ. And, and faithful believers. We want them to speak well of us as well. But the world? No. No. Jesus said, the world hates me. It's also going to hate you. So the world will always hate the faithful church. That's number one. Number two... Follow the light to get more light. When God gives us his word, he expects us to act on it. We have a responsibility. When he shows us his son, he calls us to believe upon him for salvation. And that's what we must do. And so I, I want to make sure that we understand this. And if there's anybody here that is is not fully in, maybe they're part of the crowd and they, they've not really kind of jumped in with both feet. I want to speak to you for a minute. Becoming a follower of Christ means putting this into practice, acting on the light that you do have. And this applies to mature believers as well. We are to continually act on the light that we have and God will give us more light. But particularly for those that are that are maybe seeking and, and just kind of part of the crowd or kind of considering it or not sure, Act on the light that God has given you. One way to think about that is the illustration of a swimmer. Um, when, when God calls us to himself, when we hear this this word to repent and believe, I don't want anyone to think that to jump into to Christ's church means we already have to be swimming at the level of like an Olympic athlete. We don't need to have record-breaking times to jump into God's grace. We, we don't need to... Um, have all those different strokes mastered. Uh, we don't have to have that, that kind of perfect swimmer's body that comes from, from years of toned workouts. No, it's not Olympic athlete. Instead, he calls us to jump in kind of like a YMCA beginner class. You remember those classes? You had tadpole and minnow and fish and flying fish and shark. and All, you have to, all God asks us to do is just jump in, jump into his grace. Remember that the first things they taught you was get in the pool? Uh, some of the first things they teach those, those young children are hold your breath and put your head under the water. Uh, learn, learn how to be in the pool without hanging on to the side. Let go of the pool side for just a minute and then you can hang on to it again. Those kind of things. Okay, maybe you really don't understand how the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ works and his, his dual natures. Uh, maybe you're not exactly sure how there's covenantal unity across redemptive history maybe you can't date the, the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria but you can act on what John has said he has said whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not die but will live eternally whoever comes to and believes in Jesus will have their sins forgiven and will not enter into judgment just jump into God's grace all that other stuff God will teach you. God will bring you through. He'll bring you through minnow and fish and flying fish. Just jump into God's grace. Number three, right judgment. This is where I said we want to spend the most time and also have kind of two sub points. Look what Jesus is teaching about right judgment. First, what he's not saying. He's not saying don't judge a book by its cover. That's not it. He's not saying that because uh, they didn't like what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath, they misjudged him and labeled him as a bad guy and that if they would have looked closer, they would have judged with right judgment and seen that he was a good guy. This is not teaching on character assessment. You have heard that preached? That's incorrect. What he is saying is do not judge according to appearances, meaning how something appears to you. Do not judge according to your own judgment, your own standards, your own idea of what's right and wrong, your own worldview, your own opinions, your own deeply held beliefs, unless they're based on scripture. He's saying, don't judge like that. Instead, judge with right judgment, meaning judging or discerning or thinking through and coming to conclusions about matters according to God's word. Sola Scriptura was one of the five solas, the rallying cry of the reformers because they understood that everything that we, we know about God and about ourselves and how to live rightly comes from scripture alone. So Jesus showed them how to use right judgment. In our passage, he appealed to Moses in the practice of circumcision. And, and the message is, look, if you look to, to scripture and what God has called you to do, you would have known what, that I, what I'm doing is, is permissible. Same thing in Matthew, the, the heads of grain. If you would have gone to 1 Samuel and Leviticus and Hosea, you would have known that I was, that they were not breaking the law. Right judgment is the discipline of thinking through all things through scripture alone. And I want to point out these, these two areas that I think Jesus is, is showing us here and that we want to get into our heads The first one is this. Jesus is showing us that we are to look to the whole of Scripture and practice systematic theology. It's not as hard as it sounds. Systematic theology is the practice of taking one subject, let's say forgiveness, and instead of picking out one verse on forgiveness and saying, okay, that's it, that's what we need to do. Instead, it looks through the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and takes every part of Scripture, every biblical biblical teaching on that topic and assimilates it into one big pile and then distills it down and says, okay, based on everything God has told us, this is our doctrine or this is what we believe about forgiveness. So how God forgives us, how we forgive others, Um, what what has to take place in forgiveness, um, what what isn't forgiveness, what it looks like, all those things come together and we base our our doctrine on, on everything. So that's what systematic theology, it's saying let's take everything on subject X, let's take everything on subject Y, everything on subject Z. That's what Jesus is showing them how to do. When he went to 1 Samuel and Leviticus and Hosea and he said, all those things inform how you are to understand the commandment of the Sabbath, he's teaching them, practice systematic theology. Don't pick out one verse. Look at the entirety of scripture. Instead, they were doing the opposite. They were taking Exodus 20.10, you shall not do any work. And then they weren't looking at anything else. They were piling up their own things. And this shows us the danger of appealing to a single verse of scripture and misusing it by taking it in a direction that that we think it should go rather than how God has told us it should go. Uh, One example, I'm going to point out a couple examples really quick. One was uh, just a page turn earlier, John 5, 28 and 29. If you're here for that, if not, here it is. Jesus says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those Those who have done good To the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. If that's all we looked at, do you see how easy it would be to conclude that salvation is by works? Those who do good are saved. Those who do bad are not. But that's not what scripture teaches. If you were here when we looked at that, this verse serves as a check verse against thinking that faith alone excuses us from any kind of obedience and good works. And Jesus, in the whole of Scripture, teaches, no, you need both. If you have saving faith, there will be good works that glorify God present. So this is one of those places where it would be very easy if we didn't practice systematic theology. Another example, 1 Corinthians 7.20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Okay. I've, I've heard that verse taken out in, terms of when, in another denomination in terms of the whole sexuality debate, and they say, well, this is who I am. Uh, th- this is just my identity, so this tells us that it's insurmountable and I should just remain in this condition. I'll, I'll be a Christian and I will continue to practice this ongoing unrepentant sin. But that's not what that verse means. And if we look at it in the whole of Scripture, it, it becomes very clear that that's not what that verse means. One of the reasons the Reformers championed sola scriptura is because they understood the doctrine of, of the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, first, excuse Me, 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed down by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is profitable for teaching, that's what's right, reproof, showing what's not right, correction, how to get right, training in righteousness, how to stay right. The whole of Scripture Psalm 119:60 The sum of your word is truth the sum or the entirety of each of its component parts together is truth and Jesus expected them to use it all in making right judgment so that's number 1 systematic theology number 2 subpoint he's telling us that we should be using true and necessary inferences true and necessary inferences Here's an example of one. The Bible commands no work to be done on the Sabbath. The Bible commands priests to work on the Sabbath. Therefore, priestly work is an exception to the command not to work on the Sabbath. You see how that works? A is true, B is true, therefore C must be true. Now, it, it may not. the Bible may not come out and expressly state that therefore statement, but it's there when using true and necessary inferences. Like it is with priestly work. Here it is with circumcision and healing. Uh, Rescued a trapped or injured animal is an act of mercy and permissible on the Sabbath. Uh, Healing is an act of mercy uh, greater than rescuing a trapped animal. Therefore, healing a person is permissible on the Sabbath. See how easy that is? That's what he's teaching them. And that's what that whole argument was when he took them back to circumcision and tried to show them, look, if you do this, then what I am doing is certainly permissible, true and necessary inferences. Uh, Baptism, here's one that our Baptist brothers and sisters struggle with. Baptism is a covenant sign given to all visible covenant community members. Children are members of the visible covenant community. Therefore, children should receive the sign of baptism. That's a true and necessary inference. Now, our Baptist brothers and sisters will say, show me the verse, show me the verse where it says we are to baptize children. And we have to say, well, that verse isn't there. And then we can turn around and say, show me the verse where it says we are to not baptize our children. And of course, they have to admit that verse isn't there. So we say, okay, let's go to scripture, the whole of it, and let's use true and necessary inferences like Jesus did and like he expects us to. Well, why is this so important? Because judging by appearances has made inroads into the church in America. Judging by appearances. There are professing believers who who have been immersed in the world for so long, and they've received so much input and messaging from the world through education, through news, through media, social media, advertising, workplace, unbelieving family member and friends, it's been it's, it's all around them. It's like the fish that lives in the water that doesn't know what it means to be wet anymore because he's constantly in the water. It's the same thing. The longer we live in this world, the easier it will be to succumb to what we might call the, the 2023 secular worldview. It's just all around us. And sometimes when challenged on a topic or a position, these professing believers might start off, well, by saying this, Well, I think, and then what follows is shades of secular worldview or mixing of biblical morality with political correctness of the day. But as believers, when we're challenged by a topic or position, our answer should start with, well, the Bible teaches, and then what follows should be a balanced biblical position based on the whole of scripture using systematic theology and true and necessary inferences. So, the question today is where are you? Do you find yourself standing solely on Scripture alone, or do you find yourself clinging to opinions that may or may not overlap with what God's Word says? Are you using right judgment, or are you judging things on how they appear to you? In summary, If you're not in Christ this morning, I want to challenge you to try something new. Start believing what God has told you. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Jump into the pool of God's grace. That's all you need to know right now. You don't need to be a Christian Olympian before you follow Christ. He'll show you the way. Act on the light that he has given you and he will give you more light. I guarantee it. If you're in Christ, I want to challenge you to try something new. Or maybe it's not new, and I want to challenge you to recommit to not judging things on how they appear or your own opinions, but instead with the right judgment of Scripture. There was a husband and wife, and the husband was late for work, and he was looking for his keys. And he couldn't find them anywhere. He was lifting things up. He was looking on the kitchen table. He was looking under the couch cushions. He was looking. And she said, did you look on the kitchen table? His wife said. He said, yes, I looked on the kitchen table. She said, well, that's where I saw them. He said, they're not there now. And she said, if I come down there and if I find them on the kitchen table, you ever heard one of those? If I find them, you have to do dishes for a week. He said, okay, you come on down because they're not there. And she came down, she lifted a bag, said, here's your keys. They were right in front of him. He, he did lift it up, he just didn't see them. I want to challenge you to bring your life and your beliefs and your practice and your positions and your stance and your views and your convictions all under the lordship of Jesus Christ and his word. And even if you think you've done that, even if you think you've, you've done a self-examination and have looked anywhere, looked everywhere, don't be surprised if on the kitchen table of your life, God reveals something else that still hasn't been surrendered to Christ. Right judgment is the discipline of thinking things through using all of Scripture. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your Son, for his sacrifice on the cross. We give you thanks for our salvation that is through faith alone and Christ alone. And Father, we also give you thanks for your word. It is sufficient, and you have told us how we are to, to read it and to, to bring it all together and gather it all together in order to make sense of what you've told us and how to apply it and how to practice it. Father, give us right judgment. Help us to abandon any desire to judge by how things appear to us and instead let us wholly Surrender ourselves to you and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.